Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm excited to share this episode with you today. My guest is Nabil Manji. Nabil is the Senior VP, Head of Crypto and Emerging Business at WorldPay from FIS Global. WorldPay is the world's largest payment processing company. And in 2019, WorldPay was acquired for $43 billion and merged into Fidelity National Information Services. That's where the From FIS Global comes from. The company provides payment and technology services to merchants and financial institutions and processes approximately $2 trillion in volume annually. Nabil also represents WorldPay from FIS on the Governing Council of Hedera, Clayton, and is a partner slash advisor at Covalence Capital. Nabil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Excited to be here today. Excited to have you here. And I think you're the first person I've had from a payment. Well, I know you're the first person I've had from a payment processing company. And it's interesting when you think of the idea of payment processing and Web3, given how much of an how obvious the overlap is. But before we get to that, I thought we could just start on your introduction to Bitcoin. Where did you learn about it and what did you think? Sure. Yeah. So I kind of had two little introductions into Bitcoin. Uh, one was more happenstance where an investment firm that I was working at in 2016 uh, that used to invest in the enterprise technology space started to come across one or two deals actually that were doing something, you know, leveraging blockchain. And I actually learned about Ethereum first um, and kind of found my way backwards to Bitcoin through that. And then the second avenue was actually through a friend of a friend uh, who was an early adopter and innovator in the crypto space, um, you know, had several projects back in the 2014, 2015 timeframe, who then also introduced me to crypto and of course, Bitcoin uh, in 2016, 2017 as well. And was there something about crypto or Ethereum when you first learned about it that caught your eye and made you think this might be different than previous things that technological innovations that you may have seen in the past? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So um, one is I used to play a lot of video games as a kid. And so I kind of natively understood the concept of a digital economy or digital money. And so this notion that there could be a currency which could be used to purchase physical or digital goods or exchange value across peers or different parties around the world uh, 24 seven instantly, that in and of itself was just intuitive to me. Uh, the second thing, which is really more on the Ethereum side was just the whole idea of smart contracts and pro programmable money or programmable, or pro eh, programmable um, contracts. And so I thought, you know, in my role as an investor and as an advisor in previous lives, I could just start thinking about so many use cases where, you know, either I was doing something in the past personally or had known someone or a company doing something where had one or two or other of these technologies been in place, it would have been a heck of a lot better. 
it's funny that you brought up the idea of growing up with video games because I think to our generation, the generation that did grow up with that technology, I remember being surprised that something like this wasn't already created, that it just makes sense that there would be digital, nat- digitally data- native money uh, that, that existed. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, almost all facets of our life are, you know, managed through the internet today, right? Like you can order something you want and have it at your door within minutes or hours. You can stream any sort of, you know, piece of entertainment or media. You can access any piece of information or news. And so I feel like the financial arm of that or the financial arm of our existence is kind of the last piece that needs to make that journey uh, more seamlessly into that digital realm. It is. And we'll talk a bit about how you're helping to, to drive that forward and what WorldPay is doing. But I thought we'd just briefly touch on your childhood. And you're taking part in Token 2049 to discuss the biggest things happening in crypto and Web3. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned on your LinkedIn post that what makes this event more exciting is that it's taking place in one of my childhood homes, Singapore. And that caught my attention because you don't see that many people living in England. I assume you live in England. Maybe maybe you don't, but... Yes, I do. So it, it was interesting that that was your child at home. Did you move around a lot as a child? Did you grow up in Singapore? Have you lived in other countries around the globe? Yeah, so I had a bit of a circuitous childhood that started in the U.S. and then ended in the U.S. Uh, so I, I was born in the U.S. and spent the first couple of years of my life there. But then, uh, you know, for my father's work, my family moved over to Asia, uh, first Bangkok and then Singapore for a total of about five, six years. And I spent most of my primary school um, or elementary school for for Americans uh, in Singapore before then moving back to the U.S. and finishing, you know, secondary school and university there. Okay. And then how did you end up in the U.K.? Uh, Kind of two different reasons. So one is work. Uh, WorldPay's kind of main hub is in London. And so uh, the the role that I started in here four years ago uh, was based in London. So there definitely was kind of a work-driven element. But on a related note, I've always wanted to live overseas. Uh, my mom's actually British Canadian, so I had a passport. I have family out here. Uh, obviously, from a language perspective, uh, they speak English or a version of English. And so, you know, all, all the kind of stars aligned where there was an opportunity that I was interested in. It was a location I was excited about. It was one that I was fortunate enough to have the ability to go work and also one where I knew I wouldn't be, you know, completely alone because I had friends and family that, that were located there as well. Incredible. And how have you found living in all these different countries i'm sure you learned so many lessons just from moving around as a child but were there is there something that you've learned through that journey of of living in different cultures with different similar languages but different accents things like that yeah probably too many things to list to be honest Uh, and to your earlier question of like how do i like it i i love it um you know my my role in world pay as you can probably tell by the name is is quite a global company Uh, We've got offices in, I think, 50 or 60 different countries. You know, my team have got people all the way from San Francisco, you know, to Sydney. So I think being in a kind of very diverse, you know, global city like London and then working in a role that, you know, gives that exposure has the opportunity to observe and learn a lot of things. But I think from a business perspective, um, you know, it really sticks out to you. And this is not insightful or, or, you know, new or novel anyway, but just how different uh, the way of doing business and the norms in terms of what's acceptable, what's not, uh, what is expected versus what's not, et cetera, um, in all the different countries are really quite different. Um, you know, everyone says like, 
there's or there's a lot of people who believe you know the, the globe is more similar now than ever which may be true but it's still incredibly different around the world right so it's, it's been interesting to see that firsthand and have the the, the privilege really to do that, but also to kind of see how that impacts the the operations of a massive company like WorldPay. Right, because you have two goals. It's number one, to make a great impression, not offend anybody, present yourself well, mm-hmm. but number two, to achieve the objective that you've traveled to this country to do. Is there anything exactly. you do before traveling to a new country where there's a new culture to quickly get up to speed or to be mindful of what's appropriate and what's not when it comes to a business transaction? Absolutely. I've done a lot of different things. Uh, there have been certain, some countries where if I don't know anybody or we don't have people on the ground there, I've just gone on YouTube, candidly, and Googled like, you know, things to be aware of when doing business in country X, Y, or Z. Uh, but fortunately, you know, like I said, we do operate in, you know, close to 60 countries. And so more often than not, I've been able to reach out to colleagues or people on my team or clients or partners or whoever it might be and um, just get their two cents, so to speak, about, you know, even things like, what is the dress code? Um, you know, what time are meetings usually held? Uh, are there any specific greetings that we should use or, or any specific terms or topics that we should or should not discuss on a first meeting? So I try and get that firsthand. And um, we're lucky to have, you know, teams in all those regions or all those countries. And a lot of the times those teams are from people that are, you know, natively from that country. It's not like we've sent a bunch of expats out to, to go live somewhere. Yeah, I can imagine there's so much nuance and it's funny you mentioned the clothing because that's something I that hadn't crossed my <laughs> mind. But even what to wear is something you don't think yeah. about when you go to work for your day to day. But if you're going to a business meeting and ultra formal attire is expected and you didn't know that, yeah. you're you're sort of you dug your grave before you've got started. Let let's talk Definitely. let's talk a bit about um world pay. And I'd love to hear about where you started, but could we start with Sure. What like how do you describe world pay to people who don't know what it is and aren't familiar with it? Yeah, so what I say about world pay and FIS is it's it's probably one of the biggest companies you've never heard of. Right. Uh, like like you said in your introduction, you know you hadn't really heard about world pay, and the reality is is that's because we sit behind the scenes as an infrastructure and technology provider to the businesses that you know consumers interact with on a daily basis. And so what WorldPay does is, in the simplest terms, is we process payments on behalf of merchants, so clients that are selling something. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is when you go to a store or buy something online, you can use your Visa card, your MasterCard, whatever it might be. But Visa and MasterCard, as an example, they don't have direct relationships with merchants to process payments. Those capabilities, the ability to accept card payments are actually provided to merchants by payment processors like WorldPay. So, for example, if you walk into a store and tap your card on a terminal, you'll always see it says processing for like two seconds before it says approved. That's us. So what's going on in that two seconds is we're processing the information in that transaction, making sure that your card is valid, you know, not expired, not stolen making sure that you have enough money in your account to pay for whatever it is you're buying in that store and ultimately telling the merchant, hey, this transaction to prove. We don't think it's fraudulent. The consumer has enough money. You can go ahead and let them walk out of the store with those goods and we will send you the money the next day or two days later or whatever the, the time frame might be. So that's the role that we play in the ecosystem. You know, We're not a brand that's in front of your face. It's just technology that's kind of making your life easier in the background. It's the, the payment rails that enable the system. And exactly. I think I always assumed that it was Visa, MasterCard, and it was the payment 
companies. So where does what's the distinction? What what, what does Visa and something like Visa and Mastercard do? Yeah. So the way I like to think about it is Visa and Mastercard provide a network, and that's a network of payment rails that are available in almost every country these days. So you, as a Visa card holder, can take your card and go to any country and know that you're going to have the ability to make purchases, you know, go to an ATM, et cetera. So they build the network and the rules for that network. What we do is we give merchants the ability to access that network. So we're almost like the gatekeepers, if you want to think of it that way, where we provide the technology infrastructure and the money movement that allows merchants to accept Visa and MasterCard payments and receive the funds associated with those payments. There's a lot of other stuff we do that I could talk about for hours, but that's kind of our our core business and the core business of a payment processor. Thank you for that explanation. I think that's the the best one I've heard, and I did look it up quite a bit before this conversation, so probably should. It is confusing. <laughs> um, I'll be honest and say, when I, I've only been working in payments for about four years, and when I first started working in this industry, I was like, "This is a really messed up industry." <laughs> like it just it doesn't it doesn't make intuitive sense. Um, and prior to this, I was working in healthcare and aerospace, which are also very complex industries. But I think those two industries made a bit more intuitive sense to me than payments. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. Yeah, it's such a massive industry and the global scale of a company like WorldPay. Mm-hmm. I mean, $2 trillion in volume mm-hmm. is, is incredible. And it's hard to fathom really just how large it that is. number is. <laughs> and so for someone like you who you started leading an international team when you started at WorldPay, I believe... Um, mm-hmm. That strategically and tactically supported WorldPay's global commercial efforts with e-commerce merchants in the digital content, high risk, so crypto and regulate. Well, that's where crypto came in and regulated gambling industries. Why did you first take that role? Because I saw previously you had been a consultant and an analyst. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a couple of different reasons. So one is, you know, as you said, my background was more in strategy consulting and investing. And so I was kind of looking for a role where I could leverage those skills or the, you know, quote unquote, strategy toolkit um, and kind of bring that to bear at a company like WorldPay. So I kind of knew I wanted to do a strategy role. And then secondly, I had had exposure specifically to crypto, CFDFX and a a few other industries that were quite uh, key growth areas for WorldPay. And so the company brought me on board to help, you know, further define and chart how are we going to grow in those verticals. And just being completely candid, you know, payments is huge. And there are parts of it, at least to me, that are interesting and that aren't that interesting. Um, some of my colleagues would not like to hear me say this, but I don't think processing payments for like grocery stores or gas stations is all that interesting. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's nothing exciting about it. But if you talk about processing payments for an emerging industry like cryptocurrency, where the rules are being written, you know, they're transacting all over the world. Uh, there's a lot of different kind of innovations going on in terms of product and features that gets a lot more interesting to me. Um, so, you know, we, some people call it high risk verticals. I call it the interesting stuff. <laughs> I think that's a good name for it. And I think, uh, lawyers listening would relate to it being the high risk versus interesting stuff. I think that's definitely a, an apt title. And so yeah. when you do take on a role like this and you start bringing on the, act as that back-end gatekeeper for crypto-related companies. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Where does WorldPay and where does your team interact with a crypto, say, exchange? Yeah. So starting from the beginning, you know, whenever a payments company or really any financial services company um, or really any company, to be candid, you know, wants to go into a new industry or target a new customer segment, you got to think about 
uh, what are the types of clients and business models you want to go after in that industry? What are the unique risks associated with that industry and how are we going to mitigate or control for them? What are the regulatory requirements, if any, that are unique to that industry and how are we going to make sure that we're compliant with those? Uh, how are we going to get the right expertise, all that sort of stuff? So when I joined the company, we really spent a lot of time uh, answering those questions for the crypto sector. And what we ended up doing is kind of getting, um, you know, a policy in place, a few people that understood the space, uh, kind of a, a target market in terms of business models, geographies, et cetera. And then we started going out and, and selling it. And so fast forward to today, um, you know, we've got a pretty large business where we provide payment services to uh, the world's largest cryptocurrency clients. So the large exchanges, wallets, brokerages, uh, NFT marketplaces, whatever it might be. And what we actually do for them, to answer your question, is we basically allow these cryptocurrency clients or Web3 native businesses to access traditional fiat payment rails, whether they're card payment rails like Visa and MasterCard, which we spoke about earlier, whether they're e-wallets like Google Pay and Apple Pay, whether they're local payment methods like the ideal bank transfer in the Netherlands or SoFort bank transfer in Germany or um, you know other local payment methods around the world. So we're basically allowing these these uh, cryptocurrency companies to give their consumers the same payment options that the consumer would expect to see from any other online store, as an example. Um, beyond that, we also provide them with a lot of fraud and risk management tools. Uh, as you can expect, cryptocurrency companies are often targets of hackers or you know fraudsters, etc. And so the ability to effectively detect and combat that fraud is a, a key consideration for the operations teams, treasury teams, et cetera, of these cryptocurrency clients. So we also have products and services around there. Um, and then we also give them the ability to not only accept payment, but pay out their consumers as well. So if you think about crypto, you know, a lot of people use it as an investment vehicle or a trading vehicle. And with most investments or most trades, you want to get your money out at some point. So not only are we enabling the cryptocurrency clients the ability to accept payments, but we're also giving them the the rails or the products that enable them to pay out consumers whenever they choose to cash out as well. And it's easy to extrapolate on that and see how valuable having that option is for crypto companies. Was that something mm -hmm. that was difficult to set up initially? Like, was there pushback Definitely. from people on your team, maybe not on your team now, but on, on the WorldPay side at the time? to pro Absolutely. provide, yeah. Yeah, um, so I think th there was definitely pushback in the early days. And I'll be honest, there are probably people in the business today who would prefer if we weren't in the cryptocurrency space. I think you know every vertical, whether it's cryptocurrency or groceries or whatever it might be, every, every vertical has its own risks, whether they're monetary, reputational, regulatory, et cetera. And you know, we, we always evaluate the segments that we play in, the tools, the procedures that we have in place to mitigate those risks. And as you can expect, especially back in 2015, 2016, even before I joined the business, there was a lot of concern around crypto. If you look at the early days of crypto, the narrative out there in the market was, you know, crypto is used for terrorist financing and money laundering and, you know, drug cartels and all this. And as a highly regulated financial institution in 50 plus countries, that's not stuff we want to hear, right? You don't typically associate, you know, those those narratives um, with regulated businesses. And so part of it was just the overall evolution and maturation of the crypto space where, you know, there was no licensing regimes for crypto 
uh, asset service providers five years ago for the most part. But now almost every Western nation and most of the world's developed economies have some sort of regulatory regime or licensing requirement for crypto asset service providers. There also was no compliance focused transaction monitoring tools or analytics tools like Chainalysis or Elliptic or Cyphertrace or TRM Labs or whatever it might be. But now those tools are uh, powerful, sophisticated, used by law enforcement, used by governments, used by banks, et cetera. So I think like because of some of the maturation across all those different dimensions and the increase in kind of tools to mitigate risk, along with just growing expertise and education about how crypto is actually being used. I think we're generally in a spot today where we're we're pretty comfortable with the vertical. But as you'll know from crypto, it's constantly changing. So it's not like we're sitting still and, and, and not continuing to improve where we can. I can imagine a large part of your role, especially initially, was education, spreading the word of what crypto is, why it's a tool and not a yep. specific single token. You're, yep. You know, your role now, it's it's head of crypto at an enormous mm-hmm. company like WorldPay from, C- from FIS Global. What does your role consist of? I doubt there's a typical day, but could you give us <laughs> some sort of idea of how things move around in your role sure. today? Yeah, and actually just to add on to something you said right before that, uh, a lot of my role initially was education and a lot of role, my role today is education. Um, so I spent a lot of my time, and this is kind of going into the next part of your question, uh, educating, whether it's internal people, external partners like the banks we work with, uh, regulators. I was in D.C. a few months ago talking to a few congressmen and women and their staffers about you know our perspectives on crypto. So education of the ecosystem you know, within WorldPay and outside of WorldPay is definitely a big part of the role. But in terms of what I'm actually responsible for, um, if I was to sum it up in one sentence, it's really growing uh, WorldPay and FIS's business with crypto and Web3 native clients. So essentially trying to build or grow the amount of revenue that we generate from the sector. Um, so obviously there's a very heavy sales and kind of account management component to that. So about half my team is responsible for for that. But it's also kind of setting the longer term strategy, uh, you know, the marketing and events that we want to participate in, the thought leadership that we want to disseminate, the partners that we want to form or kind of cultivate relationships with in the space. Um, you know, like we talked about working with legal and compliance and our risk teams to make sure that we're staying on top of developments in the market and, you know, working with the right types of businesses. So it's it's almost like running a little business uh, within WorldPay, if that makes sense, um, where where the goal is relatively straightforward. It's, you know, drive the growth in the business from this segment. But the actual like nuts and bolts of how you do that, you know, split across a lot of different teams. Well, I can imagine. And so you're building out this team. Was Was this role? I feel like you had some hand in creating this role. Am I correct? In <laughs> I <that>? did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the way we're organized, which is, you know, very similar to a lot of other large companies is it's predominantly regionally. So we have, you know, a head of EMEA, a head of APAC, a head of US, etc. And those regional general managers are responsible for growing world pace business in those regions across all verticals. So groceries, gas, airlines, you know, video games, whatever. Um, so crypto used to sit in that structure. Uh, so we had people in our U.S. team that were focusing on crypto, people in our European team that were focusing on crypto, et cetera. What we decided to do is because of the complexity associated with crypto, whether it's from a technology standpoint, a risk standpoint, 
a regulatory standpoint, a sales standpoint, whatever it might be, um, we were kind of realizing that, you know, maybe our existing regional model isn't fit for purpose. And maybe we should form a kind of global crypto focused team to actually better understand and better tackle those nuances. Um, you can make that argument about almost any industry that I just made about crypto. But I think the two things that were unique in crypto were two or three things. One was the pace at which the space evolves, in my opinion, is much faster than almost any other industry I know of or have worked in. Uh, you know, the, the products and the companies that are big today didn't even exist two years ago. So the, the cycles are very fast. And if you're only spending 20, 30 percent of your time on crypto, you're not going to be able to stay on top of it. So that was that was point number one. The second one is most of the big crypto companies, they're not regional, they're global. Like if you look at Coinbase, Crypto.com, Binance, Ledger, MoonPay, whoever it might be, these guys are operating global 24-7, 365 distributed remote working companies. That doesn't really jive with a regional model. How do you support Binance 24-7, 365? if your account manager is in one location or your engineer supporting them is in one location. So we thought having this global team where we've got people from, you know, the West coast of the U S all the way, you know, out to Asia would better kind of mirror the footprint and therefore be able to better serve the expectations of our clients. And then finally kind of related to the first point, but also slightly different. I think the risks, particularly from a legal and regulatory standpoint, um, are unique and also fast evolving in crypto vis-a-vis -vis other industries. I don't think there's a day that goes by in the last 18 months where there's not some headline about some regulator talking about something to do with crypto, right? You don't really see that in other industries. And so for all those reasons and probably a few others uh, that, that are you know less pertinent but still relevant, uh, we decided to stand up this kind of globally focused team. And this team is now about 50, 60 people and fully focused on crypto and Web3. Um, so they're, they're all experts, so to speak. I can see how a pitch along those lines would have worked to whoever you had to, to pitch that <laughs> to. <laughs> That's great. And it's it's so important, and I completely agree with everything you said, just given the, the pace of, of change. Why do you think that is when it comes to crypto? Like, What's your hypothesis for why crypto moves so much faster than any other industry, seemingly? That's a good question. I haven't really thought about that. Um, I'll take some guesses. So one, I think the people who go into the crypto space are relatively comfortable with risk. And I'm not talking about like regulatory risk or legal risk. I'm talking about like the risk of failure. Uh, you know, just like there's stuff in the news about, you know, crypto regulatory changes, there's always news about crypto companies exploding. So I think if you go into the crypto space, you you go in knowing that it's volatile. And so I get the impression, or not really the impression, like a lot of the people I work with and talk to, they're comfortable with that risk. You know, they're willing to roll the dice a bit more than people that are working in more conservative or slower industries. So I think the personalities that the space attracts just lend itself to moving faster, failing quicker, et cetera. The second, which I think is changing, is that for better or worse, crypto up until recently has been pretty unregulated. Um, you know, traditional financial services move slow, and a large part of that slowness is driven by regulatory complexity, right? Um, when you don't have that in a space, it allows you to move a bit quicker. 
Now, again, that's changing, so I don't know that that's going to continue to be kind of a tailwind from a speed perspective, but I definitely think that has been the case um, over the last couple of years. And then finally, the amount of investment that's pouring into the space over the past you know, two, three years in particular is really incredible. I think in 2021, crypto was you know, one of, if not the highest funded sectors within all of fintech from a VC perspective. In the first half of this year, it definitely was. And it hasn't slowed down as much as you might think, given the current market conditions. And so, you know, all else equal, if you have a big war chest and a lot of money, it allows you to do more at the same time. Yeah. So those are just a few kind of thoughts that come top of mind as, as to why it moves faster than other spaces. I think those are great. And part of the reason why I'm so bullish on crypto is because of the speed that it moves. We're learning mm -hmm. all these lessons in real time at such an accelerated pace where things yes. back in the early 60s or even with the internet took so long to develop. But now we have these global coordination tools, not just for information, but for value as well. And that really speeds yeah. up and accelerates the, the timeline on what we're working yeah. on, particularly in the crypto space. I think, too, just from like a technology perspective, you know, all these companies are really new. Like Binance, the world's largest crypto exchange, is five years old, right? <laughs> like who else has built a 200 plus billion dollar company in five years? It's, it's pretty insane. And so I think from a technology perspective, because these companies are new, they're not encumbered with legacy infrastructure, uh, legacy stacks, legacy software, legacy processes, etc. They're kind of built using the latest and greatest technology which allows them to move much quicker from a development perspective than, you know, traditional financial institutions might be able to. That's such a good point. And I remember my dad was talking to me about car companies at one time, and he asked me what the most expensive part of a GM car is. And it was the pension. And it's amazing how, right, the retiree's <laughs> pension. And so you have yeah. these new nimble companies, it makes it a lot easier to, to move quickly. And just, mm -hmm. just on that point, WorldPay obviously is a huge company. Right. And mm -hmm. a huge centralized company. And then you have this ethos of Web3, which is really pushing decentralization and things like that. How do you how do you think about this? Like, what's your thoughts on how these two things work together? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so do I ever think, you know, WorldPay is going to become a DAO? No, <laughs> uh, I don't think that I, I don't see that happening in my lifetime. Um, but what I do think is that this is part of my job, it's, especially as it relates to education, is how do we make sure that we keep up with the needs and requirements of our clients, regardless of whether those clients are centralized entities, decentralized entities, have traditional forms of governments or governance, excuse me, or non-traditional forms of governance. And so part of it is, is just staying on top of what are the new business models out there? What does that mean in terms of expectations and how do we tailor our processes or our products or our go-to-market approach to best meet the needs of those customers? So. I think, you know, what would a DAO or a decentralized organization prefer to work with other DAOs? Maybe. But I think at the end of the day, you know, everybody needs access to financial services. And if you're a compelling provider and you're willing to accommodate or be flexible to evolving business models, then I think you've got a pretty good shot in the market. Yeah, I think so as well. And even just from your earlier answer about offering the same tools when it comes to payment rails to crypto exchanges and to users of crypto. That's something that WorldPay does in, and really benefits people in the industry. And we're seeing a lot of mm -hmm. things like shadow debanking of certain founders of decentralized exchanges not being able to use yes. certain banks and, and things like that. 
Where do you see the future looking like when it comes to something like a decentralized exchange interacting with the real world? Is that something you've thought about? (laughs) Yeah, it has. It is a really interesting question, and I don't know if I have a kind of clear-cut answer for you. The reality is, is that most financial service providers, including us, like we need a party that we kind of view as working with. Now, in most cases, in our environment, that party is another company, it's an entity, and we know who the owners of that entity are, how much control each owner has, what regulations that entity is subject to based on their business model, et cetera. You don't really have all those pieces in a DAO. You know, some DAOs, it's not really clear who owns what, and if it is, the ownership's often changing on a real-time basis. Uh, They may not have clear governance structures, and if they do, those are also subject to change at a whim. Uh, they may not have a physical presence or a business entity. Uh, and if they do, it may not be clear what regulations or what standards apply to them. So it is really challenging. It's changing the way you think about who a counterparty is. And that is not an easy change to make in the financial services industry. So to be honest with you, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. I think there's kind of like a hybrid that we're probably going to see where there is an entity that kind of represents a DAO and that entity has a location in a country and an address and a set of governance documents, just like a traditional company does. But you may have the actual governance of the company be more distributed, uh, almost like, you know, what the, the, the founders of capitalism may have been thinking or shareholder capitalism, right? Where it's real time, easy, intuitive rather than, you know, annual meetings with, you know, 20 pages of proxy votes that nobody actually reads. So that's going to be a long journey. Uh, We're not there yet. And I think some financial institutions are going to struggle with that, right? Just like some of them struggle with centralized crypto companies today. Um, You know, if, if I look at the market in 2022, I think finding a bank or a payments company as a crypto native business is an order of magnitude easier today than it was three, four years ago. Um, and I'm hoping that kind of trend as it relates to decentralized organizations uh, kind of plays out over the next three to five years as well. But that doesn't mean in three to five years it's going to be easy to find financial services as a DAO. It just means that you might have a few options and those options are, are probably going to suffice. Yeah, there's a huge need in the market. And I'm glad you mentioned the idea of the capitalism throughout history because I know when in the early like 1600, 17, even as late as the 1800s, the idea of a company being a separate entity that could sign documents on behalf of shareholders was a novel idea. Some thought it was crazy at the yes. time. And we're seeing yeah. history repeat itself with DAOs where it'll take, in my opinion, some regulation recognizing these entities as a sovereign, either person or sovereign unit that can sign, yeah. whether it's digitally through a multi-sig or something. Because you need, like you made a great point, you need to have that physical contract or that entity that can be a counterparty to an agreement. Yeah. Yeah, for the most part, uh, and this varies by you know jurisdiction and by individual companies or people's risk appetites, but most financial services institutions like probably wouldn't recognize a DAO in the absence of some sort of regulatory framework like you like DAO. So I think that is critical to kind of lending legitimacy. And when I say legitimacy, it's really legitimacy from like a traditional financial services perspective. And so you mentioned you had been in DC a, a couple weeks ago, speaking mm-hmm. to, to regulators and people there. 
What, how have you seen the regulatory landscape in this area shift and where do you think we should be heading? Yeah, so I think a couple of high level themes that I've observed over the last four or five years. So one is that I think if you'd asked me this question three to five years ago, it was an environment where a lot of people were kind of just thinking it might die out and go away and we can just not worry about it. I don't hear anybody saying that now. So I think there's kind of one one big shift or one big high level change over the last few years has been acceptance that this market, this technology is here to stay and it's big and it's important and it needs to be regulated to some degree. I don't think many lawmakers would dispute that statement. Um, the second is that, you know, fortunately, it's actually been a, an issue where there's been a lot of bipartisan support. It's not an issue that's been polarized. I think there's general consensus, you know, in the U.S. on both sides of the aisle or in other countries, you know, within parliament, broadly speaking, that we need some sort of regulatory framework um, around crypto. I think what's evolving and remains to be seen is what aspects of the industry and technology get regulated and how. There's a lot of difference in how countries are approaching that. Uh, to give you some examples, you know, some are regulating specific activities where some are regulating um, currencies, uh, like the, the actual assets themselves rather than the activities or, or the risks. Um, others are also regulating things like NFTs, while others are saying NFTs are out of the scope of whatever our crypto regulation is. So there's a lot of like different approaches evolving. And I think going back to the speed point, it'll be interesting to see like how the movement of capital and talent follows the regulatory environment. Um, a good example of that, I think, is the UAE, where if you asked me to list the top 10 crypto hubs two or three years ago, the UAE would have never crossed my mind. If you asked me to list the top five or 10 crypto hubs today, the UAE is in the top three. And that's all been because of the regulatory clarity and sandboxes um, and guidance that they've provided and brought to market over that time frame. Crypto is a great industry in that it's almost forcing governments to act as sellers in a way of their country by how it they're is. going to, to market it based on how it welcoming is. it is because you can work on it from anywhere. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which I think is a good thing. I think so, too. I think so, too. Competition throughout history has always been a good thing. And something like this that gets away from the idea of a monopoly for certain countries is a good thing. And it'll force them to think critically about the regulation and how it could stifle or enable innovation in an area like this, which is moving so quickly. One thing yeah. I'd, I'd love to hear from you, Nabil, is... What's something about your role today? I'm sure people have preconceived notions of, of things you would do, and you've spoken a bit about what you do. What's the most surprising aspect of your role? <laughs> I would say two things. Uh, one is how much of an advisory role it actually ends up being with our clients. Um, it's been interesting as the ecosystem's gotten bigger and kind of started to mature you know, some of our clients know a lot about payments, like they have payments executives and, and people and, you know, they come to us and say, I want A, B and C. This is how I want it. This is what I'm willing to pay. Let's get it done. Very straightforward. But what I would say is like eight out of 10 of our clients, probably we're actually educating them a lot about how their businesses can and should and must in some cases intersect with traditional financial services and regulations and all that. Um, a lot of crypto companies are founded by, uh, you know, quite young people who, um, again, may have more risk appetite, may have developed things quickly, but may have not worked in a, you know, 
traditional corporate setting or other business setting. And so they don't understand these things all the time. So I think I actually spent a lot of my time just to kind of summarize doing advisory type of work with our clients, which I actually found super interesting. Um, the second is how much I love to kind of nerd and geek out on the legal and compliance side. Um, I spend a lot of time with our lawyers and our, our risk teams and uh, that's because I enjoy it. I find it really interesting. I think if you work in payments, that is part of what makes payments interesting is how unique and different they are around the world. And part of that is driven by the different regulatory regime around payments around the world. And I think when you take the regulatory complexities around payments, which are very complex, and then you layer that with the regulatory complexities around crypto, which are also very complex and continuously evolving, it's actually a pretty inter interesting uh, intersection to be at in terms of the, the regulatory environment and the law. If you have a high risk appetite and you're looking for a career that you'll be interested in and curious throughout, I think you, you've picked a, a perfect one. Yeah. Well, I actually almost went to law school. So maybe it's like in my DNA or something. I've got a lot of lawyers in my family. <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, you're, you're on the right podcast for that. So when you, yeah. what do you find... Um, most interesting of working in the legal side and compliance like is it the anti-money laundering things is it the fraud prevention is it compliance um it's it's some of that i think there's two things i find interesting so one is just the different philosophies around regulating crypto that we're experiencing around the world like i mentioned you know we've got clients and just in the crypto space in close to 10 or 12 countries so just seeing how those those dozen or so countries are thinking about regulation is super interesting. Um, you know, you can obviously the, see the politics of the ruling party in each country come through a bit in, in stuff you read, the different attitudes of different regulators in each country. So that, that piece is really interesting to me. The other piece that's really interesting is how blockchain-based currencies actually can solve a lot of uh, challenges in the existing monetary uh, ecosystem uh, because of the programmability, the traceability, et cetera. Um, let me give you an example. So, you know, as part of the COVID stimulus packages around the world, uh, you know, the U.S. government, U.K. government, and several other governments pumped a whole heck of a lot of stimulus into the economy. And that stimulus was to put, supposed to go to specific types of businesses, you know, whether they were in certain industries or met certain size thresholds or whatever, and was supposed to, in many cases, be spent on certain things. Well, in the fiat world, you can't really control what people spend money on. Um, and the amount of fraud that, you know, the various uh, audits are uncovering now that we're, you know, one or two years past that is pretty staggering. But what if you can have programmable money that has a, you know, predefined set of possible recipients and can only be spent by those recipients on a predefined set of, you know, category of items? Well, now you've just cut down the avenues for fraud on those multi-hundred billion dollar government stimulus programs dramatically. Um, similarly, if you can trace every single asset or every single wallet uh, with full finality and certainty and traceability back to its origins, that's incredible, right? Like you've got to think the government agencies responsible for things like uh, money laundering, uh, prevention and sanctions and all that are looking at a future of blockchain-based money and seeing how it can you know, solve a lot of their pain points that they have today. And that's all great. But as a consumer, that's actually a little bit scary, right? Like, do I really want the government to know everywhere I'm spending my money and when I move it and where I put it and all that sort of stuff? Some people might say, hey, I don't care. Just like some people don't care what, what's being done with their data online. But 
I think a lot of people will probably care. I think how you spend your money is probably one of the most personal things, um, you know, that probably no other individual fully knows, even your spouse, right? So these are just interesting questions that I like to kind of think about and learn about and explore with our colleagues in, in legal and compliance. It must be fun. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a specific legal and compliance team set like within your crypto group? There is. Yeah. So that's a really good question. So as part of kind of standing up this dedicated crypto team, uh, we very quickly realized or appreciated that legal and compliance would be key functions that we needed to have expertise in uh, just because, again, of the the pace of change and evolving landscape on that front. And so we do have a handful of uh, crypto and Web3 focused lawyers and also a few folks in our compliance department that specialize specifically um, in the crypto and Web3 space. Legal is so interesting, given your point earlier about how you've moved almost from a less jurisdictional team to a more decentralized, right? We're a team remote work, but then you have legal where legal is fully jurisdictional. If you're practicing lawyer in Canada, you can't practice in the UK and and sure, maybe you could read the rules. How how does the team operate given those constraints? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, And it's actually a challenge we have, you know, just generally outside of crypto is WorldPay, right? Like, as I mentioned in the beginning, we operate in 50, 60 countries. Every single one of those countries, for the most part, has a unique uh, regulatory framework and set of requirements as it relates to payments. And so this is a problem we as a business just grapple with generally, as would any business, you know, doing business in multiple countries. I think the approach we've taken is um, we, we have, as I said, several lawyers, and we've spread them out across jurisdictions. Uh, so we, we have people that have local market expertise in our biggest markets, like the UK and the US, as an example. So that's piece number one. Second is, uh, even though they might not be crypto experts, we have a lot of other lawyers in the company that have jurisdictional expertise or payments expertise in a lot of other markets or niches within payments. So we have a lot of internal SMEs that we can lean on for the non-crypto um, areas where we need input which a lot of the times are, are some of the more tricky issues, kind of where those intersect with crypto or where they don't, right? Uh, and the third is uh, we, we seek external guidance, uh, you know, from law firms where and when needed. So uh, we want to make sure, like I said, that we have the latest and greatest information, especially because it is evolving so quickly. And so we, we do partner with law firms around the world to advise us, again, particularly in our, our key geographies. It sounds like a pretty fun job that you have. I love it. Yes, I I am lucky. Uh, I love my team. I really like working at WorldPay. And yeah, there's never a day that I wake up and I'm like, oh, I really don't want to go to work. <laughs> Sometimes I'm tired or stressed out, but I'm never like, oh, I hate my job. <laughs> yeah, it's never it's never boring, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I'd love to hear from you, Nabil, and I think you could offer a pretty unique perspective on this, is hiring lawyers or bringing on in-house counsel or teams for the uh-huh. particular crypto law issues that WorldPay or your team might be seeing. What do you look for? Or how do you think about who to, to bring on to your team? That's a good question. Um, so I think, you know, generally speaking, most of the complexities around crypto are on the regulatory front, not the commercial front. And so we're really looking for folks that have regulatory legal experience, ideally in financial services companies. Um, And the reason for that is a lot of countries are taking the approach of same risk, same regulation. 
And a lot of the risks in crypto have very close or identical parallels to other areas of financial services. And where that's the case, these regulators aren't really reinventing the wheel. And so if you have regulatory legal experience in things like payments or banking or insurance or whatever it might be, that actually can be highly relevant. And yes, you need to learn how blockchain technology works. Yes, there may be some crypto specific, you know, quirks or definitions or bits and pieces that you need to pick up on. But from a thematic or like philosophical perspective, probably three quarters of the regulation that applies to crypto has close parallels to regulations in other parts of financial services. So I would say financial services regulatory attorneys is kind of like the the checkbox. Um, I think if they have crypto experience, that's a bonus. But, you know, the market's not that old and most of the companies aren't or are even younger. And so finding somebody that, you know, has financial services regulatory experience plus crypto, that's a really short list of people. And uh, a lot of times those people have crypto experience because they've gone and worked at a crypto company. And like we spoke about earlier, typically the people that are going to work directly at a crypto native firm are doing it because maybe they want to take a bit more risk in their career. Maybe they want to be at a company that's moving a bit more quickly. And so I don't know that those people would have interest or appetite to you know, move back into a, a giant corporate behemoth like, like WorldPay and FIS. That's fair. And so you work with outside counsel, you work with a mm-hmm. lot of lawyers. Are there any traits that you've seen some lawyers possess that make them, in your mind, a great lawyer? Some things that for lawyers listening who could advise people like yourself regularly could think about bringing into their practice to make the life yeah. easier? Yeah. So I think in this space in particular, I think comfort with ambiguity and kind of a collaborative slash, you know, partner oriented approach is absolutely critical. Uh, The reality is, is like the regulatory attorneys on our team, you know, they're not litigators necessarily. Like we're not antagonists with our clients or our partners, right? Like we're all trying to work towards the same thing. Like we're all trying to grow our businesses. Uh, There are obviously differing opinions on what the best way to do that is or what the right way or the wrong way to do that is, et cetera. But I think you need to be comfortable with the ambiguity that exists in current, you know, geographies or current applications or whatever it might be around crypto is point one. Uh, and the second is you need to have kind of that partnership and collaboration oriented mindset, not the, you know, we're right or the client's right. One of us is right. One of us is wrong. Right. Like that's that's not the case. There is no right and wrong in most of this law. It's just interpretations, reasonable approaches, opinions, et cetera. Yeah, it's not a competition to see who can be right when you're working with a client. Yeah, it's not a lawsuit, right? Like, you know, there's nothing to win, so to speak. Yeah. And you said you grew up around lawyers? Were your parents lawyers or No, my uh my uncle is a lawyer, so my mom's brother is a lawyer. Um I have two cousins that are lawyers. Uh like I mentioned, I I almost went to law school. Um so it's definitely a field that I am am quite interested in from a tangential perspective. Why go the consulting route instead of law school? I saw you worked at McKinsey. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people I talked to and after having done a lot of reading was it was don't go to law school unless you're absolutely certain you want to be a lawyer. And I wasn't certain I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, So I was like, I'll go to McKinsey. I'll just, you know, build my business toolkit, see how it goes. And then I kind of quickly realized, like, hey, I'm actually really liking this. The thought of three years of law school. Um, is expensive and time consuming and, and obviously a lot of work. But then I was like, I don't know if I'd really want to be a lawyer. So yeah, 
I wish there was like a way you could get like, and these are actually becoming more common now, but like kind of like a master's in laws or something like that, where it's like, I know a bit more than like the average person, but I'm not like a solicitor or, you know, have a bar certificate or whatever. I feel like in your role, you probably could get a master's in law just based on everything you've learned from the crypto and the legal side. It's funny you say that, actually. Our, our international general counsel said that to me like a year ago. Um, and then he told me there was some program that they're rolling out in the UK where you could do exactly that. Like you could get a law qualification on the job based on you know doing certain things for an extended period of time. Uh, I Googled it. I couldn't find any information on it, so maybe I should go ask him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they've done some work on that. Just a, a couple yeah. more questions for you, Nabil. Sure. One thing I, I was really curious to talk to you about was stable coins. Uh-huh. And you had a great post on them that talked about how optimizing payments for a cross-border e-commerce operation requires aligning a multitude of time zones, accommodating a variety of different business day calendars, and yeah. supporting a vast array of different payment rails. So for someone yeah. like your end, right, you see how that works at a global scale. And one area that you mentioned you're excited about to address those challenges are stablecoins. Businesses yep. that adopt stable coins can better manage their pay-ins, pay-outs, and liquidity on a real-time cross-border basis with incredible efficiency and scale. Where do you see stable coins evolving when it comes to the idea of a stable coin compared to, say, a central bank digital currency? Yeah, so I'd say a couple things, um, and a lot of this is echoing what you just said, but I think it's really interesting to me that our lives today are 24 7 365 like i talked about earlier you can have almost anything you want anytime you want it um and the financial system hasn't really kept up with that and it hasn't kept up with that domestically in most countries and it hasn't kept up with that globally whatsoever um so i think there's just a need or a desire for the financial services industry to kind of make that leap into that 24 7 365 kind of fully online capability and that's going to be a long journey because everything in financial services is a long journey. Uh, but I think stable coins are kind of the best intermediate step or baby step. And there's a couple of reasons I think that. One is conceptually, they're very easy to understand. You know, one of the problems with crypto and blockchain and Web3 today in MySpace is there's a huge kind of accessibility barrier uh, where if you don't understand the technology, the tools, et cetera, it can be quite daunting. Um, I think stable coins conceptually, it's very easy to understand hey, this is just a digital representation of a dollar or a euro that exists somewhere. Like most people get that. Um, so that's point number one. Second is if you, if you think about like enterprise or business adoption, there's a lot of complexities around, um, you know, if a crypto is volatile, how do I account for it? When do I have to recognize tax liabilities, gains, losses, et cetera? Um, so I think the fact that the stable coin is one-to-one with whatever currency you're operating in negates a lot of those kind of operational complexities that a lot of businesses just don't really want to think about today. Um, so I think the way I think about it is it's kind of that first step that a lot of companies can take into the crypto ecosystem with without like engaging in all those complexities around uh, taxes, accounting, security, etc. Uh, and also not worry that the asset is going to evaporate because you know that it's backed by a fiat asset somewhere. So that's why I'm excited about stable coins. I think it it solves a lot of those 24 7 365 problems, but does so in a very kind of straightforward way. I think CBDCs are similar, but I think the biggest kind of difference is what we spoke about briefly earlier, 
I don't know how consumers and businesses feel about governments having that much visibility or control over uh, their 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 monetary activities. So to me, like from a technology standpoint, yes, could a CBDC just make stable coins irrelevant? Absolutely. Will they? I don't really know. Um, I think it, it depends. You may have some people that say, again, I don't care. Government can know what they want. It's making everybody safer. It's making everything more efficient, whatever. I think there are going to be other people, other companies that say, I'm actually really, really uncomfortable with this. I want to transact in the digital asset realm because I want the benefits of 24-7, 365, you know, real-time cheap transfers. But I'm going to do it with a stable coin, maybe a stable coin that's backed by CBDCs. That could be a thing in the future um, because I don't want the government to know exactly what I'm doing. Stable coins are such an interesting area where you have these yeah. things sort of like DAOs in a sense where they're titled DAOs, but are they really DAOs and stable coins? You know, mm -hmm. we saw what happened with Terra Luna. Was it really a yeah. stable coin, right? There's different distinctions within that idea of a stable coin umbrella. There's some that are backed by USD, some backed by mm -hmm. euros, some not really backed by anything, some, you know, backed yep. by NFTs. How do you, how do you think about the future regulation when it comes to stable coins? Do you see it, like in my opinion, it'll go the path of banks where there will be certain standards that will have to be met in order for you to be considered a stable coin for a certain currency? Yep, I 100% agree. So stable coin regulation is coming. I don't think anybody in this industry would debate that. Uh, I think it will be modeled on bank regulations, but I don't think most countries are going to go as far as like requiring stable coin issuers to register as federally chartered banks. I think they might allow other regulatory regimes or licenses to legitimize or kind of give them that license to, you know, issue and operate a stable coin. And I do think in the future, uh, probably not like in the next year or two, but maybe in the next three to five years, uh, most consumers probably won't be comfortable using a non-licensed or non-regulated stable coin. And I saw that you had WorldPay from FIS had partnered to offer USDC settlement mm -hmm. with Circle and Fireblocks. Could you explain yep. a bit more about how that works? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, you know, we process uh, payments for, you know, millions of companies in dozens of countries. And as you can expect, those transactions take place in dozens, if not hundreds of currencies. And what we do is we give our clients the ability to choose which currencies, uh, which currency, excuse me, or currencies that they want to receive the proceeds from all these transactions in. So let me give you a simple example. Uh, take like a Netflix. They're selling to consumers around the world and they might want to let consumers pay in whatever their local currency is. But Netflix doesn't have employees or vendors or entities in every country in the world. So they don't want every single currency around the globe. They don't want to manage 180 different bank accounts uh, and manage all that themselves. So what they'll say to someone like WorldPay is, hey, WorldPay, I want you to allow my consumers to pay in their local currency so they know exactly how much they're paying and they don't have to you know, incur FX fees. But I want you to settle all of that back to me in USD and euros because that's where my operations are. That's where my suppliers are, et cetera. I don't have a need for all the other currencies. So what we've done here is we've just added USDC as a settlement currency on that menu of options. So now Netflix can say, hey, WorldPay, I want you to take all of my global transactions and settle them to me in USD, Euros, and USDC. And we will say, okay, great, Netflix, we can do that for you. So all we've done is just make it a possible, what we call settlement currency in the payments industry. Um, 
and enable that with a partnership with Circle and Fireblocks for our merchants around the world. Very cool. That must have been an exciting thing for you to see actually come to fruition. Yes. Yeah, it was about a year in the making. Uh, as you can imagine, for all the reasons we've talked about on this this session, uh, you know, there's complexities around the accounting treatment, how we were going to store it, how we're going to make sure that storage is secure, uh, what we were going to charge for it, what legal regime this service would fall under. Is it payments? Is it stable coins? Is it crypto? Uh, there was a lot of discussion back and forth there. Um, obviously the operationalization of it, uh, you know, our systems are built to support fiat currencies. So this is the first digital currency that we're kind of directly transacting on our platforms. So yeah, it was a, a lot of journey or a long journey and involved probably three dozen people at WorldPay and another half a dozen each at Fireblocks and Circle. So it's a, been a big, big team effort. Well, I'm happy to see it come to fruition for you. And I imagine you know, it seems like something, oh, we'll just add in USDC. It's a big time journey and a lot of hoops you have to jump through, not only on your end, but on the regulatory side throughout the globe, Absolutely. wherever you are, yeah. you are settling. Yeah. And of course, because of our size and scale, we always get questions. So right. Some of our bank partners or other clients or regulators are like, oh, what's that? I saw that in the news. What are you doing? <laughs> Can you tell me about that? So that goes back to the education piece. <laughs> yeah, constantly educating. I, I get that. Exactly. And part part of educating is public speaking. And when I was doing mm -hmm. some research for this, you sp I noticed you speak a lot, right? There's constant. I could find tons, and I watched quite a few of them. You're, I, I find you a tremendous public speaker. You really gather oh, your thoughts you. well and answer the questions well. I would love to hear what your public speaking maybe journey has been like or how you became sure. either so confident or just so comfortable through repetition with public speaking? It's probably more the latter, to be honest with you. Um, I never really thought of myself as a public speaker, uh, but I did do some courses in high school and university uh, that were around public speaking. You know, how do you project your voice? What's the right pace to speak at? And just a lot of practice in those classes, to be honest. The other thing was the undergraduate program I did just involved a lot of group projects that you had to present back. Uh, I used to get quite nervous, if I'm being honest with you, but, and this is going to sound really weird, I kind of just stopped caring. Uh, I, I read this book uh, called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. I don't know if you've read that. Um, but I was like, yeah, what's the worst that happens if I just butcher this random presentation? So part of it is I just don't stress about it, which I think makes people or makes you as a speaker more relaxed and more uh, genuine, which in turn makes it a more engaging uh, experience. And I think the other thing too is I'm kind of lucky in the sense that I'm, I'm speaking about what I live and breathe from a work perspective, right? So I generally know the content inside and out. And obviously it's an order of magnitude easier to speak about something that you're passionate about, that you do every day, uh, where you have a lot of exposure and experience versus something where it's like, go give a speech on topic X, good luck. <laughs> Then I'd be like, uh, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> yeah, it's cool to see the conflation of all those different dynamics, right? Growing up mm -hmm. with multiple presentations, taking courses, but then also adding in that last element where, of course, you're going to be nervous because you want to do well, right? You have yeah. that desire for the presentation to go according to how you thought it would or wanted it to. But then if you can sort of eliminate that need for it to go well, you'll be you'll be so much better. Yeah, I think there's a lot of research that shows uh a little bit of stress is good when it comes to presentation. Like it keeps you sharp. It keep make sure you prepare all that sort of stuff. But too much is is counterproductive. So it's kind of like, yeah, think about it. Yeah, worry about it a bit. But like, don't drive yourself, you know, nuts over it.
Yeah, because nobody cares as much about that presentation as you do. That's yeah, a, yeah, not even. That's close. what I've learned. <laughs> Amazing. So, Nabil, just two two last questions for you. The first is is projects in the crypto space. Are there any particular projects or themes or innovation? It could be NFTs, zero knowledge proofs, yeah. things like that, that you're excited about or that you hope to see in the future. Yeah, I think a couple things. So, I would say three. Uh, so I'm really excited to see what the future of like enterprise grade public blockchain computing looks like. Uh, obviously, in like the non-blockchain public computing space, you've got behemoths like AWS and Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure and a whole host of others. And you know that space has taken 10, 20 years to come together, right? Like if you talked about cloud computing 10, 15 years ago, people would have thought you were insane. Um, so I'm really excited to see what the blockchain version of that looks like. And that's part of the reason that we joined the governing council of Hedera, as an example. Uh, we really like what they were doing from a technology perspective. We really like what they're doing from a governance perspective. And it's uh, pretty impressive, you know, some of the council members, uh, the investments they're making and use cases that they're deploying. So that's number one. Second is I'm really interested to see what happens in the DeFi space after the cascade of implosions over the last like three to five months. I think it's sad because a lot of people lost a lot of money. Uh, a lot of innovative companies obviously don't exist now, but it's also really good and healthy in a sense that, like you said, the learning cycle has been quick and fierce, to, to be honest with you, right? Um, so I'm interested to see like what DeFi 2.0 looks like as, as that space reinvents itself. And this is way overspoken about, and I think most of it is BS, but I do think NFTs are still really interesting. I think what Nike in particular has done with NFTs and the amount of money that they're generating off the royalties and the secondary sales has probably got a lot of companies being like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but like Nike in the last year or something since rolling out its NFT program, um, which for folks that don't know, basically they sell NFTs and that gives you the right to purchase a physical good, like a limited, limited edition of a shoe or whatever. Um, they charge you up front for that NFT. But then if you ever resell that NFT along with the shoe, Nike automatically gets cut in on the proceeds of that. So they've made like $180 million off NFTs uh, in net revenue, of which about half was from royalties that actually happened on a secondary sale. So could you imagine like if every single producer of consumer goods, whether it was fashion or computing equipment or whatever, made money every time you resold the good? That's insane. It's <laughs> and amazing. NFTs allow you to do that. Yeah. Agreed. And it's, shoes were part of the reason why I became really bullish on NFTs. I grew up collecting Jordans and I would okay. love to get the retro shoes. Then one time I got scammed. I bought a pair that looked legit. Yeah. But then when yeah. I did my homework, it $300 for this pair of shoes, completely fat, like fake. Yeah. And you realize there's really no source of truth when it comes to something like a secondary sale. And now if yeah. you can tie in that NFT, whether it comes with the physical shoe or not, yeah. now you're adding so much value to the end consumer and you find a way to capture that for a company. I think it's a bit of a no-brainer. And so when people say NFTs are dead just because certain pictures of monkeys or things like that have collapsed in value, they're missing the point. Yeah, I think, you know, digital art, NFTs is definitely a bit of a, a bubble or, or hype cycle, in my opinion. But I think NFTs for things like physical collectibles or representation of real assets are, are really interesting. And then also in like the ticketing space as well. Uh, you know, I think secondhand ticket sales have a high rate of, of fraud and counterfeit, etc. And it's actually really interesting. Just this week, I think SeatGeek, one of the big online ticketing firms, 
just announced that they were rolling out, you know, their NFT platform for tickets that were resold on their platform. So yeah, it's, it's a change again, that's going to take years, just like, you know, moving from paper boarding passes to mobile boarding passes took a decade. But I, I, I think it's inevitable. I think so too. And it starts with education, but it'll also be accompanied by the progression of the tools. I know people talk about email and how when it first came out, people said, well, do you think email will ever be able to equal the number of faxes that are sent? And it's like, you're missing the picture. You know, it's way, it's way broader than that. The impact will be much larger. It might take longer than, than people expect, but I think it will be absolutely massive. Nabil, last question for you talks on habits and advice. I'd love to hear what habits, what things you do consistently and try to take advantage of have helped you cultivate a successful career. That's a really good question. Um, I think I've been lucky in several ways. Like I've had a lot of great mentors and just been in the right place at the right time to some degree. But I would say on the on that first bit, um, find people that you look up to and respect and that impress you and latch onto them. <laughs> Learn from them what you can, uh, make sure they know who you are, make sure they know what sort of opportunities and experiences you're interested in. Because I think once you get past your first one or two jobs, most of your opportunities, whether they're job opportunities or client sales opportunities or partnership opportunities are gonna come from your network. So definitely you know, focus on your network just as much as you focus on the actual output of your work because that network's probably going to become your most valuable asset as you continue to grow in your career. And then the second is, um, I don't know what the right way to say this is, but in McKinsey, they call it the obligation to dissent. Uh, so they instill in you this notion that you shouldn't just take everything for granted that more senior people say, or that a client says or whatever, like if something doesn't make sense or you may have seen something different, you should challenge it. Uh, that doesn't mean you should be rude. Uh, and, you know, upset people. It just means that you should challenge things and provide your perspective. And uh, ultimately, I think that's really healthy and, you know, helps the organization or the team or whatever it might be, uh, get get to a better answer. I think those are both great points. Find a mentor, find someone you admire to learn from, and then be willing to challenge seniority or authority in, in a manner when you believe, in a respectful way, when you believe that yeah. they might be on the, the wrong path. Besides that obligation to dissent, is there any advice that you were given early in your career that has shaped who you have become? Or in the alternative, if you could go back and tell 20-year-old Nabil some advice, <laughs> what, what, would you, what would you say? Uh, I would say don't worry too much about having a long-term plan. Uh, I always get asked, like, you know, what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? I'm like, I don't have one. Uh, I think the reality is, is like, there are a lot of variables that come into play between, you know, what you're doing now in your career and what you'll be doing next and, you know, further down the line. And a lot of those variables, you don't even know that they exist today. What if you meet someone and you get married? Or what if something happens to you health wise? Or what if something changes in the global macro economy like it is right now, right? You can't predict any of those things. So what I tell people is like, have a general idea, like, I think I want to be in this industry or work in this function or whatever, but don't try and map out five years because I guarantee you the success rate of that exercise is exactly 0%. Uh, and the reason for which it will fail will be something that you don't even know about today. So true. Personally, I graduated from undergrad at school in Germany and I wrote a five-year plan. 
uh, and going to law school was not part of it. So of course, a year <laughs> later, I was in law school. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. So again, it's good to have a sense of direction and where you're heading, but I would say keep the the scope or the field of that pretty wide. Like, don't get too caught up on a specific path. Absolutely. Nabil, I really enjoyed this conversation, man. I was looking forward to speaking with you after doing the research, and I think this lived up to, to my, or exceeded my expectations. Thanks so much oh, thanks for so much the detailed taking. answers and, and taking the time today. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much for having me, and, and likewise, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.